Hello, and welcome to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. And we have plenty of news this week. And we welcome your questions and suggestions. As of this week, we have our own dedicated email. It's whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or tweet me. I'm at jrovner. We're taping today, a little bit after 9 a.m., Friday, July 14th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast. And as they say, things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. We're joined today by Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hey, Margot. Hey. Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hi, Julie. And we're happy to welcome this week Sarah Cliff of Vox.com. Welcome to the table. Hi, I'm so excited to be at the table. So the Senate has gone home for the weekend, but they left us Senate Health Bill 2.0 to chew over. And I thought we'd try to break down both the politics and the policy to the extent we can in 20 or so minutes. So let's start with the politics, shall we? Because that's at least a little bit less complicated. Sarah, can you explain what Senate Majority Leader McConnell was trying to do with the tweaks that he made to this bill? Yeah, it was kind of like a split the baby in half sort of moment, but that's obviously a very difficult thing to do, and you can end up with a lot of upset people on both sides. I would argue, I'm curious if others agree, that this was more of a shift to the right, that it was essentially a deregulation of the insurance market, which is something that Senators Cruz from Texas, Senator Lee from Utah had really pushed for, and really allowing the return of plans that can deny coverage to sick people, that can not cover the essential health care benefits. And then there were a few of these, you know, sweeteners for moderates, more opioid funding, more funding for high risk patients. But it felt very much to me like a like what he when I read that bill, I think he feels more worried about getting the very conservative centers centers on the board. And then he um, you know, also kept some of these Affordable Care Act um, taxes, these taxes on high earners. Those seem to be in place so Mitch McConnell can essentially be Santa Claus for the next few days and hand out all these things to the moderate senators. So I would expect you know, a few more state-specific deals to be made. But right now it feels like a bill that is very much shifted to the right to get the most conservative senators on board. And Joanne, remind us what the, what the numbers are that, that McConnell is dealing with, the, the, the key well, numbers he, of senators. He needs 50. Well, there are 52 Republicans. He can't lose more. He has to have 50. And Vice President Pence can be the 50th vote. The 51st um, vote. 51st vote. But the, the tiebreaker. The And right now, you know, two have publicly come out and said that they will not uh, vote for the motion to actually get it to the floor next week. So if one more bolts, um, it's over for now. I agree with Sarah. I think it was a shift to the right. I think it was a shift to the right for a couple of strategic reasons. It is if he had shifted to the moderates, there's no way the conservatives would have come on board. If he shifts to the conservatives and said, "Look, I'm really trying to do it your way," and maybe you know there's some kind of compromise in, in doing deals with with the moderates, but it's also a signal to the right in the House saying, okay, I, I really try. I went, I had a choice of going right. I have very little room to move her here. I can only lose three people. I, if I go to the left, I know I lose you guys. So I'm going to go to the right and I'm going to try to keep you guys. I'm going to do my best because if he loses the right, it's, he has no choice of, you know, getting the balance again. And it, it, he doesn't have a great shot at it right now, as is anyway. Uh, and and Margot, remind us of, of what the problems were. I know there were there were holdouts on the moderate side and holdouts on the conservative side um, from the from Senate Health Bill 1.0. What were some of the problems? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's interesting to me about this bill is 
it does do this insurance deregulatory thing that, you know, Sarah was talking about and that was a specific request from Senators Ted Cruz and Mike Lee. Um, the conservatives. The conservatives. But other than that, almost none of the changes in this bill were responsive to the particular concerns that senators have raised. So, you know, if you kind of think about the uh, – a colleague of mine did a great graphic where she kind of put them in groups like here's what they're asking for. And a lot of them were asking for reductions in Medicaid spending cuts. There was none of that in the bill. A lot of them were concerned that subsidies in the bill were not going to be adequate for low-income people and for older people in their states. There was basically nothing for them in the bill. And, you know, as Joanne and Sarah said, like, there's this move to the right. There's this move to accommodate some of the more conservative senators' interest in deregulating the insurance market more and trying to have, like, a more robust competitive environment where people can buy kind of skimpier, lower-cost plans. But... It, it, I mean, it, it does seem like a real gamble that he's he's kind of put these little sweeteners in here that are, you know, OK, you, uh, moderate senator from Alaska, Lisa Murkowski, like, here's some money for Alaska. And, you know, uh, Marco Rubio, who I didn't even know was in play, like, got a whole bunch of special stuff for Florida. I mean, you can kind of go through the bill and find a lot of little tiny changes that are clearly meant to influence particular senators. But there are not these kind of big policy changes that were asked for by groups of senators. And and also, I mean, we now know that we've got at least two senators, Rand Paul, a conservative from Kentucky, Susan Collins, probably the most moderate Republican from Maine, who've said that they're no. So now now we're waiting for this third person to sort of step up and say, yeah, I'm going to kill the bill. Um, Nobody really wants to be the third person, but I think there's a whole lot of people in the wings waiting to be the fourth, fifth, and sixth, and maybe more. So being the third person, you know, you, McConnell's just not going to love you. So, um, you know, I'm not sure. We're speaking on Friday morning. I'm not sure if we hear any more specific. They sort of said, I need to study this. I need to analyze it or I want to see what the CBO says. And that's until Monday. Yeah, I spent a couple of hours on on Capitol Hill yesterday and I got a whole lot of the exact same talking point. So um, also we could see some signals coming out of the governors. The governors are meeting in the National Governors Association this weekend and maybe – I don't know that that'll be a game changer, but there may be some more signals from the governors for where they want to go. And Vice President Pence is going to that meeting to He's speaking this afternoon, right? I think if they're waiting for the CBO, like that is not a good sign. There is very little in this bill that I think is going to substantially change what the CBO says about it. So the previous version of the Senate bill, the CBO said 22 million fewer Americans were going to have health insurance at the end of a decade, 25 percent fewer federal dollars going into the Medicaid program. They then later said, you know, 35 percent fewer dollars going into the Medicaid program in 20 years. There are some small changes in the bill that might affect some of that stuff on the margins, but there's basically no changes to Medicaid. And they put more money in, but they didn't really put more money in in ways that are going to substantially increase the number of people who are covered. The deficit reduction numbers, I think it's like hard to do the math because someone's got to go through and find all those little uh, giveaways in the bill. But if Mitch McConnell thought the CBO was going to be the thing that was going to bring reluctant moderates along, I don't think that this bill does that. There are ways that he could have spent the same amount of money that probably could have reduced the coverage losses, and that was not the choice that he made. But I think you could see that change. So I think if this bill survives, you probably see that change over the next few days. One thing that was interesting to me is that this new version of the bill, it kept these two taxes on high earners, which actually raises a lot of revenue but didn't spend all of that which it spent some of it on the opioid epidemic, some of it on high-risk patients. I think together that was um, like $110 billion, But he was working with, I think it's $230 billion that is raised by keeping those two taxes. So 
my expectation is some of that gets kind of like handed out to address those. Because I think you're totally right, Margo, that there are all these concerns about Medicaid that were raised by moderate senators that are just not addressed at all. And I, I would expect to see those addressed in like one on one. Like um, I think Bloomberg is calling the Alaska the polar payoff. Uh, we've been doing we've been going with Kodiak kickback at um, is our Vox style. But I expect even more of those over the next few days and that the moderate bargaining is going to be this like one on one state by state kind of process. But I want to talk a little bit more about you know, in my notes, I call it Medicaid and the moderates, which by the name would be a great band name. Um, <laughs> the, you know, one of the things that Susan Collins said yesterday when you know, she was talking to one of the multiple times she was talking to reporters yesterday, was that, you know, if you just repealed the Affordable Care Act, it would not do to Medicaid what this bill does to Medicaid. The Affordable Care Act expanded Medicaid, but it... uh, but. They're doing more than just taking back that expansion. They're putting a cap on the program, which is something Republicans have been wanting to do since the 1980s. Um, I, I think – is it hard for the moderates to kind of communicate this? I think Susan Collins has. But I so know that – Lisa Murkowski. Yeah. I mean Murkowski um, said it behind closed doors to the other senators. I forgot what day it was, two days ago maybe. And But then it came out and talked about what, what it – she said, let's just deal with the ACA and what's wrong with the ACA and the Republicans' view. There's a lot of things wrong with the ACA. They and really the Democrats view there's things wrong with the right, ACA. but the, the Republicans do have a longer list, um, and the votes to change it. And and Murkowski and Collins and others have said, you know, this whole change in the nature of Medicaid. I mean, change a really fundamental, the biggest change in Medicaid since its creation in 1965. I mean, really changing how we finance it, shifting those costs to the states, or not having them paid at all. I mean, there's real questions about what Medicaid is going to look like in 10 years, uh, or fewer years than that. You know, she's saying, why did you make it so hard? Why did you put this whole huge Medicaid albatross, deal with the ACA, which is the exchanges and Medicaid expansion, but then they put this huge conservative desire, which turns out, you know, be careful what you wish for. They don't, some of these governors are not, governors and senators, they're not really moderates. I mean, some of the people expressing concern about Medicaid financing are not moderate by any sense of the word, except when, oh, we wanted a block grant or a cap. Well, oh, maybe... We don't really want it, or we don't want it to be this this big a change, this much money going away. I think the math is kind of interesting here. So, you know, when you looked at the original bill, the House bill and the original Senate bill, it was pretty clear why those Medicaid cuts were in there. So part of it, I think, was a genuine policy desire to change the program. I think Julie's right that Republicans have felt that Medicaid is kind of a runaway program and needs to be put on a diet and states need to have more ownership over spending in the program, which, you know, we could talk about the merits of that argument. But I also think, you know, the Republicans wanted to repeal all of the Obamacare taxes. That was a really big priority for them. And they also wanted to preserve some stuff to help people in this kind of middle income category buy their own insurance. They didn't want to entirely roll that back. So they make policy changes that make the subsidies that people get to buy insurance sort of less generous than they were under Obamacare and available to fewer – well, some a little bit fewer on one end, a little bit more on the other end. But um, – you know, the idea was that sort of like the Medicaid cuts are the way that you deal with the tax cuts so that you can still have some money left over to do the um, coverage expansion for the middle income people. Yeah, because taking away Medicaid saves a whole lot of money. But, I mean, 
one of the things that's interesting about this version of the bill, right, is they actually got rid of those tax cuts. They got all of this revenue back. They got rid of the high income tax cuts that I think were an, originally a primary goal of this legislation. And and they're spending a lot of the money, maybe not all of the money. And yet they still and they still have, you know, more than 20 million people probably without insurance as a result of this policy. And like they still need the Medicaid cuts to balance it out. I mean, it is a sign of kind of how convoluted the different policy options that have been layered on top of one another have been. Sarah, I feel like the Medicaid cuts have sort of finally come to the fore. I think in the House it was sort of a sleeper issue. But now, and particularly with kind of the resistance of people mm-hmm. going to town meetings, Medicaid has become sort of the the, the, the cart that's pushing the horse in this bill. Yeah, and it? kind of in a surprising way. You know, Medicaid is often like the stepchild to Medicare in terms of its political clout and, and you know, its defense. And I remember, you know, covering the original Affordable Care Act, I, I think what Democrats Democrats really wanted to do was expand private insurance. Um, you know, they only did this big Medicaid expansion because it was a lot cheaper and they were trying to get a certain CBO score. So they said, OK, we'll put a bunch of people in Medicaid. But that was never their original desire. And Medicaid, I think, you know, has proved really robust while the marketplaces have struggled and kind of fits and starts and kind of struggled to attract health insurance carriers and with premiums and deductibles. Medicaid enrollees like seem pretty happy with their coverage. One of the things that's been interesting to me reporting in the field, which I'm sure some of you have run into, is that people on Medicaid seem so much happier with their coverage. Like they don't have these deductibles and the marketplace enrollees I talk to are often like, I have this deductible and I have these premiums and I'm so frustrated. I feel like I'm paying for nothing. So Medicaid has proved to have surprising political clout in this. And I think another element to it is that you have all these Republican governors who have expanded Medicaid who are staring down really significant cuts to their state budget and who are in a position, and this is, you know, Governor Sandoval from um, Nevada, who has become a surprisingly key player in the affordable, in the repeal debate. Um, In the Vox newsroom yesterday, we were referring to him as the 101st senator because he seems to be, you know, wielding so much power and making all these, you know, pitches for keeping the Medicaid expansion. And he's a Republican governor. And then you have um, John Kasich in Ohio, that Medicaid really has become a very potent force in this debate. And I think because because it's a program that's actually serving its its membership really well and that governors think works decently well, too. Well, I think we should remind people what Medicaid is because it's covering 74 million Americans. That's roughly one out of five people in rough numbers, okay? It is covering low-income people. Under Obamacare expansion, it's now covering the working poor or other people who are just above the poverty line. It is covering severely disabled people. It is covering poor kids. It is a big source of paying for treatment for the opioid epidemic. And it is covering long-term care. People People get Medicare and Medicaid mixed up. But if you have grandma who has spent down her assets and she is in a nursing home or grandpa or whoever it is, there's a good chance that that bill is being paid by Medicaid. And if you're talking about taking $800 billion out of Medicaid for over a decade, it's a lot of money. And a lot of people and Medicaid has just become a lot more popular. There's a higher awareness of it. I think it is partly because of the aging population and Alzheimer's and things like that that so many people in America are struggling with um, and worried about what happens if this goes away or if this is cut to this. You know, it's really you, you can save money in Medicaid. You can innovate in Medicaid. You can come up with better ways of delivering care in Medicare, Medicaid and the private sector. But $800 billion is $800 billion. It's hard to innovate your way to $800 billion of savings. 
Thank you. Um, I want to sort of turn back to the other side of the bill um, for a few minutes because I think it, it, it's complicated what they did. And this is sort of this amendment that was being pushed by by Ted Cruz, the conservative, who – and this was – you know, the conservatives in the House had the same problem, which is they said the biggest problem with the Affordable Care Act is that premiums are too high. Um, they, they seem to be sort of leaving aside the idea that deductibles and other out-of-pocket out of spending is too high. They're very concentrated on the premiums and they say that the way to get the premiums down are to make the plans less generous. If you're buying, if you don't want all the benefits, you can pay less and you'll be better off. And that led to whatever it was that they did in, in Senate Bill 2.0. Who wants to jump in with sort of an, a short explanation of the changes that they ended up making? So I can do this because I actually spent a lot of yesterday with lawyers going through this legislative language because it was written in a way that was extremely hard to understand. Uh, basically, what this part of the legislation would do is it would say if you're an insurance company, uh, you have to offer a series of plans that are like the plans you offer under Obamacare. They adhere to all the Obamacare rules. There, You have to offer a gold, a silver, and a benchmark plan. But then if you offer those plans, you get access to some federal subsidies that help you know stabilize that part of the market which come directly from the federal government to you as an insurance company. They don't go through the states. And then you also would be allowed to offer different plans in the same parts of the state. And those plans I have been calling no rules plans. So it's not entirely true that there are no rules, but the legislation specifically waives almost all of the regulations that we think of as defining what health insurance is. So that includes there are no minimum benefit standards. There are no um, limitations on how much you can ask people to pay out of pocket for their own care. They are not required to offer insurance to everyone who buys it. So if someone sick comes and wants to buy insurance, they can say no. They are not required to uh, make the insurance renewable. So if you have it for one year and you get sick and then you want to renew that policy at the end of the year, they can say, no, thank you. I don't want you to have this insurance anymore. They are not required to charge the same price to people of different health status. They can say, I'll cover you, but I won't cover your particular illness. They can say, I'll cover you, but with a waiting period. There, you know, This is essentially anything goes kind of market. And it would operate alongside this market that has all of the Affordable Care Act rules. And I think when Ted Cruz proposed this idea, his thinking was it sort of has something for everyone. It has uh, for people who are really concerned about pre-existing conditions protections, here is this protected market over to the side where all of the rules are still in place. People who buy insurance in that market will have access to federal subsidies based on their income. And so that means that even if premiums in that market get really, really high, people who are moderate income will still be able to afford the premiums in that market. And there's like this extra stabilization to like help with everyone else. And then, you know, this kind of free market system can flourish on the other side. And I think Republicans for a long time have felt that the right way to deal with people with high health care costs is to have a high risk pool, to have a special place where you put sick people and sick people have different needs than your average customer. And the Affordable Care Act just tries to spread that cross cost across everyone. And what that does, is it makes insurance too expensive for people who are healthy. And I think this approach essentially is that. It says, you know, if you're sick, you're going to end up in this market where all the Affordable Care Act rules apply. And if you're healthy, then you can go into this other market and buy insurance that's going to have less financial protection, less medical benefit, but will be a lot less expensive for you and may better suit your needs until you get sick. This this, has, for this sort yeah. of a technical fight going on between Senator Lee and Senator Cruz about this, um, and without going into like insurance actuarial 
you know, descending into that. There's there's a fight about whether this is actually splitting the insurance market into two or not. Senator Cruz has been telling people it's a single risk pool, that he's not bifurcating it, that it's all the same. Senate, and Senator Lee is saying, that's what I want. I want it separate. And this is not. So they're, they're fighting about, is it single? Is it not? And, and as Margaret pointed out, how do you have a, Margaret pointed out, you know, how do you have a no rule and a hundreds of rules all in one risk pool? How do you regulate that? So this is sort of, there's sort of not unanimity even on the I called some actuaries about this yeah. and I said, okay, like, you know, Senator Cruz is saying this is a single risk pool. I don't want to get into like what a single risk right. pool means, but I you well, know, basically but I said like, the healthy subsidized the sick. That's right. basically what it means. And I said like, how would you do this? And I got a lot of like, who we, knows? We, we, <laughs> like, we have no idea. We've yeah. been talking among ourselves. I mean, this, I think I talked to some of the people. <laughs> you talked to some insurance industry folks who who had the same response. Well, it's the very insurance confusing. industry. I mean, the insurance industry has been pretty. Um, I would say slightly supportive of this bill until, until this amendment. amendment. Well, one of the things, you know, I think it's also helpful not just to benchmark against the last bill, but just like look at the general approach that's evolved in the Republican legislation. And it really, you know, you see these CBO reports that show that premiums go down. But, you know, I actually I remember Margaret a really good headline on a piece about like there's no magic to how and I think maybe this was about the House. It was about the bill? House. Bill, okay, yeah. yeah. Like there's no magic to how you lower the premiums. You lower the overall premiums in the market by making insurance absurdly expensive for older people to the point they just don't buy health insurance. So I think we could see a CBO report on Monday that says, you know, premiums go down 10 percent or so. We've seen this in other reports. Um, but the reason that would be happening is because you have these huge increases on people in their 60s in the marketplaces, like four or five times. I think in the House bill, it was like a 700 percent increase because the subsidies had declined so much. Probably it's not so much in the Senate. So I think it's still pretty big, though. It is big. Um, you know, premiums like the single minded focus on premiums can be uh, a bit misleading and mask a lot. So you could have a bill that reduces I'm doing air quotes. You can't see that in the podcast. That <laughs> reduces premiums, um, but it is really just reducing premiums for some people and making premiums so expensive for other people that they just leave the market entirely. Or they can also shift in costs yeah, to higher saying. deductibles. Yes. Higher. Yeah. I mean, this is bill. Yes. I mean, I wrote this story last week. The, this bill is not addressing the cost of health care. This bill, mm-hmm. the, both the House and the Senate bills, are really looking at the cost of premiums. So, so I have right. a. I, this is a little bit of an aside. I'm hijacking Julie, but um, there was some speculation yesterday that the Congressional Budget Office actually wasn't going to evaluate this part of the bill and that they said there wasn't enough time. And so instead, uh, there's a possibility that the Department of Health and Human Services will score the effects of this bill or this part of the bill. The and Cruz it, Amendment. The Cruz Amendment. And yeah. if you looked at the legislative text, there were these like big black brackets around this section of the bill, which I didn't know what that meant. But someone said that means like CBO, ignore this. I think it's actually really interesting question about whether the Cruz Amendment would, in fact, lower the average insurance premium in the market, because CBO has said a long time ago that they do not count everything that sellers call insurance as insurance, that there's sort of some basic financial protections and medical benefits that have to be included in the package for CBO to count it as insurance coverage. Which explains why they want HHS to do this instead of CBO. Right. So you could imagine, I mean, I'm not saying that this is what CBO would do, but you could imagine a scenario in which CBO would say most of the cheap stuff that would uh, appear in this universe uh, we don't count it as insurance. And so even if lots of people bought it and even if the premiums were relatively low, 
all the insurance that CBO would actually count as insurance would be the really expensive high-risk pool insurance. And so that could result in a scenario where, A, the coverage numbers look worse because there are lots of people who bought what they thought was insurance, but CBO doesn't think it's insurance. And B, like when you think about what is the average insurance premium, that it could actually go up because it could include a larger share of these high-risk policies and a lower share of these cheaper policies. Now, you know, the Republicans and CBO disagree a lot. And I think if CBO had an analysis like this, I think there would be a legitimate conversation about is CBO's threshold for what counts as insurance reasonable? Uh, you know, it is not necessarily true that if CBO had that kind of analysis that the average premium would go up. It would just be the average premium for the thing that CBO thinks counts. But I, I, as I thought through that logic, it occurred to me why they maybe do not want CBO to get its hands on this part of the bill. Well, you're actually anticipating my next question, which is what happens next? I get, we get Theoretically, we get a CBO score. And then what? Well, I mean, it's really going to be up to Mitch McConnell. I mean, does he – I think all of us – I don't think any of the four of us would be surprised if this version of this bill dies by Tuesday, by Monday. I mean, I don't think – I think we all see it as in jeopardy. Um, the scenario right now is McConnell's going to try to, you know, beg, woo, twist arms, whatever, you know. Throw a little <laughs> throw money Throw a little it. money, throw a lot of money, um, you know, to try to get to those, the 50 votes he needs. Once he gets to the floor, the pathway toward passage is not assured, but he has a better chance. It's the really is going to even get it to the floor. Well, we have the parliamentarian to deal with right, too, right? right? Mm-hmm. right. Yes. <laughs> but scenario two is then, you know, if this bill dies, if, if he cannot make this one work, does he just say, okay, we're going to just walk away from this big comprehensive approach and, and do something stable, smaller stabilization bill? Or does he go back and do we have version you know, 3.0, <laughs> which would then, okay, conservatives, I tried to do it your way, didn't work, you know, signal to the House, I did my best, I got to move a little bit more to the center, and that's where we are. So that's going to be his call, and it's also whether he thinks he can pull it off. The well, other one, one theory that I've yeah. heard is that there's kind of going to be the middle step, which is if this bill doesn't succeed on the floor, that there will be an effort to bring up a even further right bill, a straight repeal mm-hmm. bill along the lines of what they passed in 2015. And so you could see like a sequence of right. votes, right, mm-hmm. where they are voting for this bill. OK, that one didn't work. Let's vote for just clean repeal. That's what you know. Trump said. If we can't do this, let's do clean repeal. They might vote for that. And I think that is very unlikely to get over the threshold. And then maybe you start looking at you I know, think some it's, kind of Yeah, I, I think this drags longer oh. than Tuesday. <laughs> I think yeah, no. all of us are gainfully employed for a while because it's been really hard for Republicans to give up repeal. And I think one of the things that will start happening in the background of all of this is I'm expecting some kind of further deterioration in the Affordable Care Act marketplaces with, you know, insurance companies are watching all this happen here in D.C. And they're like, why would I possibly sell health insurance in this marketplace that, um, you know, Trump has said he wants to repeal? So I think the backdrop is you're going to have more more news stories about, you know, my state has no insurance companies in X counties. And there'll be some kind of countervailing forces, insurance companies who see those opportunities. But there's been this such a single-minded focus on repeal. And I think the House process was instructive to me of how hard it is for legislators to kind of let this go. Because I remember Paul Ryan giving his press conference where he says, well, Obamacare is the law of the land and we tried. And clearly, you know, I don't know if Ryan wanted to go for a second shot or not, but his rank and file did. And they were able to do it. That that draw to repeal is so strong in the party right now. The, the the political dynamic is the Republican base still wants repeal. They don't like this particular bill. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
very few people like this particular bill. I mean, that's why the, the, the Republicans don't want to vote for it. They think it's bad policy and they think it's bad politics. It's, you know, it's very unpopular. But the idea of do, do, the Republicans have been promising for seven years. Not only have they been promising it, it's a defining promise. It's part of who the modern the Republican Party in 2017 is. It's the party that promised to get rid of Obamacare. And now they're, they're having a little trouble with this. So they're still trying to sort of do something that the base expects because they've been telling them for seven years that it's okay to expect it, but do it in a way that people don't hate. So, the, I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about is the the um, the, the Senator Cassidy and Senator Graham. There's another <laughs> no. There's another twist. Now they're saying they're, this is basically an idea that you take the tax revenue, you keep the taxes, you keep this money, and you say to the states, okay, here's a big check, you figure it out, and that you'd have a lot of variability in what it states look like. Things are going great though when you're right. rolling out your new bill and two senators are right and they're CNN right. with this new bill and they're saying. It's only an amendment if it gets to the floor. We'll, we'll test it. We'll, we'll see if people like it or not. Well, except they're completely undermining McConnell because they're saying, you guys, if you don't have to vote for this holding your nose. There is another way. So, yeah, I mean, I think we will be uh, – I don't think any of us are going to be, like, lying on the beach right. at 4 o'clock in the afternoon for quite a while. Well, I had our plans, Joanne. Yeah. I had lots more things on, the, on my outline, but I think we're going to stop there for right now. Um, we're going to wrap things up with the segment we call X. Extra credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everybody else should read too. Uh, and don't worry if you miss it. We will post the link to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Sarah, you're, you're our new member, so we'll start with you. What's your extra credit assignment this week? Um, I selfishly assigned it to one of my stories that I thought was interesting. That's fine. Um, so I um, wrote a story about this waiver that Alaska got this week. It's called a 1332 waiver. But essentially, the Trump administration did something to make Obamacare work a lot better in Alaska, which I thought was really interesting. They are essentially sending the state a lot of money to run a reinsurance program. They think this will be deficit neutral because the premiums in the state will go down so the federal government spends less on, less on tax credits. And it was really interesting to me because this is a program the Obama administration had conditionally approved right before it left office. Now you're seeing the Trump administration come in and approve it too. And for all the things going on in repeal and all the ways the Trump administration is destabilizing the marketplace – it seems like they are not fully ready to press, like, the explode button, that in Alaska they actually are doing something to make Obamacare work significantly better. Um, does this relate to Senator Mikowski? I've heard some chatter about it. I have no idea. I know the deadline to approve the waiver was coming up, so they had to make a decision within the next week or two. But um, this is a way that the Trump administration is actually making Obamacare work better. Joanne. Uh, I actually found a video that I thought was um, touched on uh, a lot of the things that we've been thinking about. It's on the Atlantic website. It's about 11 minutes, and it's about the homeless, homeless and how they're constantly in and out of the hospital. They're super, super expensive. If you can house people, you actually bring down health care bills. And again, the people... Many of these people in this brief video, they have mental illness. I don't know if they have substance abuse. Um, they are in terrible. They have all sorts of physical health problems that are making them su what they call super users in and out of the hospital. And you know that's that's also your Medicaid doctor, your Medicaid dollars at work, and then coming up with better ways to treat them so they're not in this revolving door. So it was a, it was a ten minute interesting video, and it was very humanizing. Margo. 
So I want to recommend a tidbit that was in a newsletter. Um, Feel free. So Bob Herman at Axios uncovered this really interesting sort of Easter egg in a recent Medicare payment rule. So these are like these thousand-page rules that Medicare puts out every year about like what doctors and hospitals are going to get paid for various things. And it was a good reminder to me that like the kind of this is continuing to march on as all of us are paying attention to what's happening on Capitol Hill. So he found that. Uh, they had changed the payment rate for ankle replacement surgery. So now ankle surgeons and medical device makers who make implants for ankle replacements are going to get paid 60% more uh, next year from Medicare than they had in the past. And that probably affects their income kind of across their book of business, too, because a lot of insurers follow what Medicare does. And, you know, I will just point out that the Secretary of Health and Human Services is himself an orthopedic surgeon, and so he may have been particularly receptive to the requests of the ankle surgeons to increase their pay. But uh, yesterday, there was another big Medicare payment rule that came out that I just haven't had even a second to look at. But, you know, the Trump administration is doing a lot of health care policy, uh, you know, that will affect people's business. It will affect the kind of care people are getting. And I'm glad that uh, someone is looking at those rules while we're uh, paying attention to senators. I, I love that he called it big ankle. Big ankle, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, mine is a story from my colleague, Jordan Rao, who's been actually doing a lot of sort of the, the, the in-depth stuff of late. Uh, and it's about disabled kids and Medicaid. It ran in the Washington Post last week. Uh, and basically what it says is that they the in, in come, going from Senate Health Bill 1 to Senate Health Bill 2, or actually might have been in Senate Health Bill 1, they're trying to carve out um, the disabled kids so that they don't get hurt by the caps to Medicaid, because that was a concern by some of the moderate senators. And as it turns out, they they're really unable to do that uh, entirely because of the way we count disability, um, the, the way the government accounts for disabled kids. So they can only count certain kids who are on a certain government program. And there's all these other, you know, hundreds of thousands of disabled kids who still would be caught under the, the caps, even though the intent was to, to not do it. And I thought that was just a, a perfect example of what happens when you try to do something that impacts this much of the healthcare system in this short a period of time through kind of a non-regular. Uh, uh, process. So it was uh, uh, a, a cautionary tale, if you will. Um, and I think that's going to be it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org with suggestions for future shows. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Margot? I'm at Sanger Katz. Joanne? At Joanne Kennan. Sarah? And at Sarah Cliff. Excellent. We'll be back in your feed soon. There will be plenty of news. In the meantime, be healthy.